He banned those statements because he truly believed that words are powerful tools. What a person says and thinks becomes real. Rich Dad firmly believed that what we said to ourselves became our reality. That's why I suspect that, for people who struggle financially, their emotions often do the talking and control their lives. Until a person learns to overcome those emotionally driven thoughts, their words do become reality. Words such as, I'll never be rich, that idea will never work, it's too expensive for me. If they are emotionally based thoughts, they are powerful. The good news is that they can be changed with the support of new friends, new ideas, and a little time. People who are not able to control their fear of losing should never invest on their own. They really are best served by turning that job over to a professional and not interfering with them. I've met many professional people who are fearless when investing other people's money and able to make lots of money. But when it comes to investing or risking their own money, their fear of losing becomes too strong and they ultimately lose. Their emotions do the thinking rather than their logic. I've also met people who can invest their money and win constantly, but lose their calm when someone asks them to invest money for them. The making and losing of money is an emotional subject, so my rich dad gave me the secret to handling these emotions. Rich Dad always said, to be successful as an investor or a business owner, you have to be emotionally neutral to winning and losing. Winning and losing are just part of the game. Quitting my secure job. My friend Mike had a system that belonged to him. His father built it. I did not have that good fortune. I knew that someday I was going to have to leave the comfort and security of the nest and begin to build my own system. In 1978, I resigned from my full-time secure job with Xerox and took the hard step forward with no safety net. The noise in my head from my fear and doubt was loud. I was nearly paralyzed with fear as I signed my letter of resignation, collected my last paycheck, and walked out the door. I had an orchestra of self-damaging thoughts and feelings playing inside me. I was bad-mouthing myself so loudly and with such conviction that I couldn't hear anything else. It's a good thing, because so many of the people I worked with were saying, he'll be back, he'll never make it. The problem was that I was saying the same thing to myself. Those emotional thoughts of self-doubt haunted me for years until Kim and I were successful in both the B and I quadrants. Today, I still hear those words. They just have less authority. In the process of putting up with my own self-doubt, I learned to create other thoughts and statements of personal encouragement, statements such as, keep calm, think clearly, keep an open mind, keep going, ask someone who has gone before you for some guidance, Trust and keep the faith in a higher power wanting the best for you. I learned to create these thoughts of encouragement internally, even though there was a part of me that was frightened and afraid. I knew that I had little chance of success my first time out, but the positive emotions of trust, faith, and courage, along with good friends, moved me forward. I knew that I had to take risks. I knew that risk led to mistakes and mistakes led to wisdom and knowledge, both of which I lacked. For me, failure would have been to let my fear win, so I was willing to move forward with few guarantees. My rich dad had instilled in me the idea that failure is part of the process of success. Internal Journey The path from one quadrant to the next is an internal journey. It is a journey from one set of core beliefs and technical skills to a new set of core beliefs and skills. The process is much like learning to ride a bicycle. At first, you fall down a lot. Oftentimes, it is frustrating and embarrassing, especially if your friends are watching. But after a while, the falling stops and riding becomes automatic. If you fall down again, it's not that big of a deal because you now know that you can get up and ride again. 
The process is the same when going from an emotional mindset of job security to the emotional mindset of financial freedom. Once Kim and I made the crossing, we were less afraid of failing because we were confident in our ability to stand back up again. There are two statements that kept me going personally. One was my rich dad's words of advice when I was on the brink of quitting and turning back. You can always quit, so why quit now? That statement kept my spirits higher and my emotions calm. It reminded me that I was halfway there, so why turn back? The distance going back was the same as going forward. It would be like Columbus quitting and turning back halfway across the Atlantic. Sometimes quitting is the best move, and having the intelligence to know when to walk away is important. Too often I meet people who are so stubborn that they keep going forward on a project that has no chance of success. The problem of knowing when to quit or when to keep going is a common problem with anyone who takes risks. One way to manage this problem is to find mentors who have already successfully made the crossing before. A person who is already on the other side can best guide you. But be careful of advice from someone who has only read books about the crossing and gets paid to lecture on the subject. The other statement that often kept me going was, Giants often trip and fall, but worms don't because all they do is dig and crawl. The main reason so many people struggle financially isn't because they lack a good education or are not hardworking. It is because they are afraid of losing. If the fear of losing stops them, they've already lost. Losers cut their winners and ride their losers. Fear of being a loser affects what people do in strange ways. I have seen people who bought stock at $20 sell their shares when they reached $30 because they were so afraid of losing what they had gained. And then they watched the stock go up to $100, split, and go up to $100 again. Ironically, that same person who bought a stock at $20 will watch it go down to $3 and still hang on, hoping the price will come back up. This is an example of a person being so afraid of losing or admitting that they lost, that they wind up losing. Winners cut their losers and ride their winners. Winners do things almost exactly the opposite. Often, the moment they know they took a losing position, i.e., their stock price starts to go down instead of up, they will sell and take their losses. Most are not ashamed to say they took a loss, because a winner knows that losing is part of the process of winning. When they find a winner, they will ride it up as far as it can go. The moment they know the free ride is over and the price has peaked, they cut and sell. The key to being a great investor is to be neutral to winning and losing. Then you don't have emotionally driven thoughts, such as fear and greed, doing your thinking for you. Losers do the same things in life. People who are afraid of losing do the same things in real life. We all know of people who stay in marriages where there is no longer any love. People who stay at dead-end jobs. People who hang on to old clothes and things they never use. People who stay in towns where they have no future. People who stay friends with people who hold them back. Emotional intelligence can be controlled. Financial intelligence is closely linked to emotional intelligence. In my opinion, most people suffer financially because their emotions are in control of their thoughts. We as human beings all have the same emotions. What determines the differences between what we do and what we have in life is primarily how we handle those emotions. For example, the emotion of fear can cause some of us to be cowards but it can also spur others to become courageous. Unfortunately, when it comes to the subject of money, most people in our society are conditioned to be financial cowards. When the fear of losing money comes up, most people's minds automatically start chanting security rather than freedom, avoid risk rather than learn to manage risk, play it safe rather than play it smart, I can't afford it rather than how can I afford it? 
it's too expensive rather than what is it worth long term. Diversify rather than focus. What will my friends think rather than what do I think? The Wisdom of Risk There is a science to taking risks, especially financial risks. One of the best books I have read on the subject of money and risk management is Trading for a Living by Dr. Alexander Elder. Although it was written for people who professionally trade stocks and options, the wisdom of risk and risk management applies to all areas of money, money management, personal psychology, and investing. One of the reasons many successful bees are not always as successful as I's is because they do not fully understand the psychology behind purely risking money. While bees understand risk when it involves business systems and people, that knowledge does not always translate into the systems of money making money. It's emotional more than technical. In summary, Moving from quadrants on the left to quadrants on the right is more emotional than technical. If people are not able to control their emotional thoughts, I don't recommend the journey. The reasons things look so risky on the right side to people on the left side is because the emotion of fear is often affecting their thinking. People on the left side think, play it safe, is a logical thought. It isn't. It's an emotional thought. And it's the emotional thoughts that keep people stuck in one quadrant or the other. What people do on the right side of the equation isn't that hard. I'm sincere when I say that it's as easy as buying four greenhouses for low prices, waiting until the market improves, selling them, and then buying a big red hotel. Life really is a game of monopoly for people on the right side of the cash flow quadrant. Sure, there is winning and losing, but that's just part of the game. Winning and losing are part of life. To be successful on the right side is to be a person who loves the game. Star athletes often lose more than they win, yet they love the game. Donald Trump went broke and battled back. He didn't quit because he lost. Losing only made him smarter and more determined. Many wealthy people went broke before they became rich. It's a part of the game. If a person's emotions think for them, those emotional thoughts often blind them from seeing anything else. It's because of those knee jerk emotional thoughts that people react rather than think. And it's emotional thinking that causes people from different quadrants to argue. The arguments are caused by people not having the same emotional points of view. It's that emotional reaction that blinds a person from seeing how easy and often risk free things are on the right side of the cash flow quadrant. I encourage all of you who want to make the crossing to make sure you have a long term positive support group and a mentor guiding you. The struggle Kim and I went through was worth it. For us, the most important thing about crossing from the left side to the right side was not what we had to do. But who we became in the process. To me, that is priceless. Chapter 9 Be the Bank, Not the Banker. The Rich Create Money. I have focused on the B portion of the formula be, do, have, because without the proper mindset and attitude, you could not be prepared for the great economic changes that are facing us today. By being someone with the skills and mindset of the right side of the cash flow quadrant, you will recognize opportunities that arise from these changes and be prepared to do. This will lead you to have financial success. I remember a phone call I received from my rich dad in late 1986. Are you in the real estate market or the stock market? he asked. Neither, I replied. Everything I've invested is in building my business. Good, he said. Stay out of all markets. Keep building your business. Something big is about to happen. That year, the U.S. Congress passed the Tax Reform Act of 1986. In just 43 days, Congress took away many of the tax loopholes that people counted on to shelter their income. 
For people who were using those passive losses from their income property as tax deductions, they suddenly still had their losses, but the government had taken away the tax deduction. All across America, real estate prices began to plunge, in some cases as much as 70%. Suddenly, property was worth far less than the amount of their mortgages. Panic swept the real estate market. Banks and savings and loans began to shake, and many failed. People could not get their money out of the banks, and then Wall Street crashed in October 1987. The world went into financial crisis. Fundamentally, the Tax Reform Act of 1986 eliminated many of the tax loopholes that the high-income E's and S's depended upon. Many of them had invested in real estate properties or limited partnerships in order to utilize any losses to offset their earnings from the E or S quadrants. And while the crash and recession did affect people in the B and I quadrants, many of their tax avoidance mechanisms were left intact. During this period, E's learned a new word, downsizing. They soon realized that when a major layoff was announced, the share price of the stock of the company announcing the layoff went up. Sadly, most did not understand why. There were many S's also struggling to cope with the recession that was caused by decreased business, higher insurance rates, and losses from the real estate and stock markets. As a result, I believe that individuals on the left side of the cash flow quadrant were financially hurt and suffered the most as a direct result of the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Transfer of Wealth While people on the left side were suffering, many people on the B and I side were getting rich, thanks to the government taking away from some people and giving to others. By changing the tax code, all the tax trick reasons for investing were taken away from people who were simply buying real estate to lose money. Many were high-income employees or professionals such as doctors, attorneys, accountants, and small business owners. Prior to this period, they had so much taxable income that their advisors told them to buy real estate to lose money and then, with any extra money, invest in the stock market. When the government took that loophole away with the Tax Reform Act, one of the most massive transfers of wealth began. In my opinion, much of the wealth was taken away from the E and S side and handed to the B and I side for pennies on the dollar. When the savings and loans, the organizations that issued the bad loans, failed, billions of dollars in deposits were at risk. The money had to be paid back. So who was left to pay back the billions of dollars lost in savings and real estate foreclosures? Well, the taxpayers, of course, the very people who were already hurting enough as it was. Some of you may remember a governmental agency called the Resolution Trust Corporation, or the RTC as it was commonly known. The RTC was the agency responsible for taking the foreclosures from the real estate crash and transferring them to people who knew how to handle them. For me and many of my friends, it was like a blessing from financial heaven. Remember that money is seen with the mind, not with the eyes. During this period of time, emotions ran high and vision was blurred. People saw what they were trained to see. Three things happened to people on the left side of the cash flow quadrant. 1. Panic was everywhere. When emotions are high, financial intelligence often disappears. People were so concerned about their jobs, the falling value of their property, the crash of the stock market, and the general slowdown of business, that they failed to see the massive opportunities right in front of them. Their emotional thoughts blinded them. Instead of moving forward and beating the bushes, most people went into their caves and hid. 2. They lacked the technical skills required on the B and I side. Just as a doctor must have technical skills developed from years of schooling and then from on-the-job training, people in the B and I quadrants must also possess highly specialized technical skills. These include financial literacy, how to restructure debt, how to structure an offering, how to raise capital, understanding your market, and other learnable skills. When the RTC said, 
We have a banker's box for sale, and in it is property that used to be worth $20 million, but you can have it today for $4 million. Most E's and S's didn't have a clue about how to raise the $4 million to buy the gift from financial heaven or know how to recognize the good deals from the bad. 3. They lacked a cash machine. Most people during this period had to work harder just to survive. By operating as a bee, my business could expand with little physical effort on my part. By 1990, my business was up and running and growing. During this period, the business grew from a startup to 11 offices worldwide. The more it expanded, the less physical work I had to do, and the more money came in. The system and the people in the system were working hard. With the extra money and free time, Kim and I were able to spend a lot of time looking at deals, and there were many of them. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. There's a saying that goes, it's not what happens in one's life that matters, but it's the meaning one puts on what happens that matters. The period from 1986 to 1996 was, for some people, the worst time of their lives. For others, it was the best of times. When I received that phone call from my rich dad in 1986, I recognized the fantastic opportunity that this economic change presented me. Even though I did not have a lot of extra cash at the time, I was able to create assets by utilizing my skills as a B and an I. Later in this chapter, I will describe in greater detail how I created assets that helped me become financially free. One of the keys to a successful and happy life is to be flexible enough to respond appropriately to whatever change comes your way. Unfortunately, most people are not equipped to handle the fast-breaking economic changes that have happened and continue to happen. However, most people are generally optimistic and have the ability to forget. After 10 to 12 years, they forget, and then things change again. History repeats itself. Today, people have more or less forgotten about the Tax Reform Act of 1986. The E's and S's are working harder than ever. Why? Because their tax loopholes have been taken away. As they have worked harder to get back what they lost, their incomes have gone up and their tax accountant has again started whispering the same old words of wisdom. Go buy a bigger house. Interest on your debt is your best tax deduction. And besides, your home is an asset, and it should be your largest investment. So they look at the easy monthly payments and they get sucked into a higher debt position. In my opinion, a great transfer of wealth is happening, and it may be happening in a very different way than we might expect. This is why my rich dad had me read books on economic history. Economies change, but history repeats. And money continues to flow from the left side to the right side of the cash flow quadrant, just as it always has. Many people are deeply in debt, yet they pour money into the stock market, often through their retirement plans. The B's and I's on the right side will sell at the top of the market, just when the last cautious people on the left side overcome their fear and enter the market. Something newsworthy will happen, the market will crash, and when the dust settles, the investors will move back in. They will buy back what they just sold. Again, we will have another great transfer of wealth from the left side to the right side of the cash flow quadrant. It will take many years to heal the emotional scars of those who lost money, but the wounds will heal, just as another market is nearing its peak. At about that time, people will begin quoting Yogi Berra, the great New York Yankees baseball player. It's deja vu all over again. Is it a conspiracy? Often I hear people, especially E's and S's, say that there is some kind of global conspiracy held together by a few ultra-rich families who control the banks. These conspiracy theories have been around for years. Is there a conspiracy? I don't know. Could there be a conspiracy? Anything is possible. I know there are powerful families who control massive sums of money. But does one group control the world? 
I see it as one group of people on one side with one mindset and another group of people on the other side with a different mindset. They are all playing this one big game of money, but each quadrant is playing from a different point of view and with a different set of rules. The big problem is that the people on the left side are unable to see what the people on the right side are doing. But the people on the right side know exactly what the people on the left side are doing. Witch Hunts Instead of finding out what the people on the right side know, E's and S's often go on witch hunts. Only a few centuries ago, when there was a plague or something bad happened to a community, townspeople would go on a witch hunt. They needed someone to blame for their plight. Well, witch hunts still go on today. Many people look for someone to blame for their financial problems. These people often want to blame the rich for their problems rather than admit that their own lack of information about money often is a fundamental reason for their struggles. Heroes become villains. Every few years, a new financial guru appears and seems to have some new magic formula for wealth. In the late 1970s, it was the Hunt brothers who tried to corner the silver market. The world initially applauded their genius, but almost overnight they were hunted down as criminals because so many people lost money after they followed the brothers' advice. In the late 1980s, it was Michael Milken, the junk bond king. One day, he was a financial genius, but right after the crash, he was tracked down and sent to jail. Individuals change, but history repeats. Today, we have new investment geniuses. They are all over TV, the Internet, and financial publications. Some have even attained celebrity status. Warren Buffett is touted as a near god. When he buys something, everybody rushes in and buys what he buys. And when Warren Buffett sells, prices crash. Money follows him freely. If there is a major market correction in the near future, will today's financial heroes be tomorrow's hated villains? Time will tell. In every upcycle of the economy, there are heroes, and in every down period, there are villains. Often, they end up being the same people. People will always need witches to burn or conspiracies to blame for their own financial blindness. History will repeat itself, and again, a great transfer of wealth will take place. When it does, which side of the transfer will you be on? the left side or the right side. In my opinion, people simply fail to realize that they are in this large global game, a virtual casino in the sky, but no one ever told them that they are important players in the game. The game is called Who is Indebted to Whom. Be the bank, not the banker. When I was in my mid-twenties, it dawned on me that the name of the game was to be the bank but that didn't mean to get a job as a banker. My advanced education was about to begin. It was during this period that my rich dad had me look up words like mortgage, real estate, and finance. I was beginning to train my mind to see what my eyes could not. He encouraged me to understand the game and, when I learned the game, I could do what I wanted with what I found. I decided to share my knowledge with anyone who was interested. He also had me read books on the great leaders of capitalism, people such as John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, and Henry Ford. One of the most important books I read was The Worldly Philosophers by Robert Heilbronner. For people who want to operate on the B and I side, his book is a must-read, for it traces the greatest economists of all time, starting with Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations. It is fascinating to look into the minds of some of our most important philosophers, the economists. These people interpreted the evolution of modern capitalism over its brief history. In my opinion, if you want to be a leader on the B and I side, a historical view of economic history is important to understanding both our history and our future. After the worldly philosophers, I recommend reading... The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin.
Paul Zane Pilser's Unlimited Wealth, James Dale Davidson's The Sovereign Individual, Robert Preacher's The Crest of the Wave, and Harry Dent's The Great Depression Ahead. While Heilbronner's book gives you insight into where we have come from economically, the other authors give their views on where we are headed. Their contrasting viewpoints have been important. They allowed me to see what my eyes could not. By reading books like these, I have been able to gain insights into the ups and downs, the cycles and trends of the economy. A common theme in all of these books is that one of the biggest changes of all is right around the corner. How to Play the Bank After the 1986 Tax Reform Act became law, there were opportunities everywhere. Real estate, stocks, and businesses were available for low prices. While it was devastating for many people on the left side, it was wonderful for me because I could utilize my skills as a B and I to take advantage of the opportunities around me. Instead of being greedy and chasing everything that looked like a good deal, I decided to focus on real estate. Why real estate? For these five simple reasons. 1. Pricing Real estate prices were so low that mortgage payments were far lower than the fair market rent for most properties. These properties made great economic sense, which meant there was little risk. It was like going to a sale at a retail store when everything was 50% off. 2. Financing The banks would give me a loan on real estate, but not on stocks. Since I wanted to buy as much as I could while the market was depressed, I bought real estate so that what cash I had could be combined with financing through banks. For example, let's say I had $10,000 in savings to invest. If I bought stocks, I could only buy $10,000 worth of stocks. I could have bought on margin and put up only part of the total cost and the broker company would have loaned me the remainder, but I wasn't financially strong enough to risk a downturn in the market. With $10,000 in real estate and a 90% loan, I could buy a $100,000 property. If both markets went up 10%, I would have made $1,000 in stocks, but $10,000 in real estate. 3. Taxes If I made $1 million in profit from stocks, I'd have to pay nearly 30% in capital gains tax on my profit. But in real estate, the $1 million profit could be rolled tax-free into the next real estate transaction. On top of that, I could depreciate the property for even greater tax advantages. Important note, an investment must make economic sense outside of the tax benefit for me to invest in it. Any tax benefit only makes the investment more attractive. 4. Cash Flow Rents had not declined, even though real estate prices had declined. This put a lot of money in my pocket, paid for the mortgages, and, most importantly, bought me time to wait until real estate prices went up again. When they did, I was able to sell. Although I carried large debt, it never hurt me because the rents were far greater than the cost of carrying the loan. 5. An Opportunity to Become a Bank Real estate allowed me to become a bank, something I had wanted to do since 1974. The Rich Create Money In Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I wrote about how the rich create money and often play the role of banker. The following is a simple example that almost anyone can follow. Let's say I find a house worth $100,000 and I get a heck of a deal and only pay $80,000 for it. I pay $10,000 down payment and get a $70,000 mortgage I'm responsible for. I then advertise that the house is available for sale for its appraised price of $100,000. I use these magic words in the ad. House for sale, owner desperate, no bank qualifying, low down payment, easy monthly payments. The phone rings like crazy. The house is sold on what is called a wrap, or a lease purchase contract. In simple terms, I sell the house for a $100,000 IOU. This transaction 
is then registered with a title and escrow office, which often handles the payments. If the person defaults on the $100,000, I simply foreclose and sell the property to the next person who wants a low down payment, easy monthly payment home to live in. People line up for the opportunity to buy a home on these terms. The net effect is that I have created $30,000 in my asset column for which I am paid interest, just like a bank gets paid interest for the loans it makes. I was beginning to be a bank, and I loved it. Remember that Rich Dad said, Be careful when you take on debt. If you take on debt personally, make sure it's small. If you take on large debt, make sure someone else is paying for it. In the language of the B and I side, I laid off my risk or hedged my risk to another buyer. That is the game in the world of finance. This type of transaction is done all over the world. Yet, wherever I go, people come up to me and say those magic words. You can't do that here. What most small investors fail to realize is that many large commercial buildings are bought and sold exactly in the manner described above. Sometimes they go through a bank, but many times they do not. It's like saving $30,000 without saving. I previously talked about why the government does not give people a tax advantage for saving money. Well, I doubt if the banks will ever ask the government to do so because your savings are their liability. The United States has a low savings rate simply because banks do not want your money or need your savings to do well. So, this example is a way of playing bank and increasing your savings without a great deal of effort. 1. I determine the interest rate for my $30,000. Often, it's 10% interest. Most banks pay you less than 5% on your savings today. So, even if I did use my own $10,000 as a down payment, which I try not to do, the interest on it is often better than the bank would pay me. 2. It's like creating $20,000, $30,000 less the $10,000 down payment, that didn't exist before, just like the bank creates an asset and then charges interest on it. 3. This $20,000 was created tax-free. For the average person in the E-quadrant, it would take nearly $40,000 of wages to be able to set aside $20,000. Income earned as an employee is a 50-50 proposition, with the government taking its 50% through withholding tax before you ever see it. 4. All property taxes, maintenance, and management fees are now the responsibility of the buyer because I sold the property. And there is more. Many creative things can be done on the B&I side to create money from nothing, just by playing the role of the bank. A transaction like this may take a week to a month to put together. The question is, how long would it take for most people to earn an additional $40,000 so they can save $20,000 after taxes and other expenses? The income stream is sheltered. In Rich Dad Poor Dad, I briefly covered why the rich use corporations. 1. Asset Protection If you are rich, people tend to want to take what you have through litigation. But the rich often don't own anything in their own names. Their assets are held in trusts and corporations to protect them. 2. Income Protection By passing the income stream from assets through your own corporation, much of the income that is normally taken from you by the government through taxes can be sheltered. The harsh reality is that, for employees, the sequence goes like this. Earn, taxed, spend. As an employee, your earnings are taxed and taken through withholding taxes even before you get your paycheck. So if an employee is paid $30,000 per year, by the time the government gets through with it, it's down to $15,000. With this $15,000, you must then pay your mortgage and all your other daily expenses. If you pass your income stream through a corporate entity first, this is what the pattern would look like. Earn, spend, taxed. 
By passing the income stream from the $30,000 through a corporation, you can expense much of the earnings before the government gets their hands on it. If you own the corporation, you make the rules, as long as it conforms to the tax code. For example, if you make the rules, you can write into the bylaws of your company that child care is part of your employment package. The company may pay $400 per month for child care out of pre-tax dollars. If you pay for it with after-tax dollars, you have to effectively earn almost $800 to pay for that same child care. The list is long, and the requirements are specific as to what an owner of a corporation can write off that an employee cannot. Certain travel expenses can be written off with pre-tax dollars as long as you can document that you conducted business, such as a board meeting, on the trip. Just make sure you follow the rules. Even retirement plans are different for owners and employees in many instances. Having said all of this, I want to stress that you must follow the required regulations to make these expenses deductible. I believe in taking advantage of the legal deductions allowed by the tax code, but I do not recommend breaking the law. Again, the key to taking advantage of some of these provisions is which quadrant you earn your income from. If all of your income is generated as an employee from a company that you don't own or control, there's little income or asset protection available to you. That is why I recommend that if you are an employee, keep your job, but begin to spend time in the B or I quadrants. Your road to faster freedom is through those two quadrants. To feel more financially secure, the secret is to operate in more than one quadrant. Free land. A while back, Kim and I wanted some property away from the hustle and bustle of the crowded city. We got the urge to own some acreage with tall oak trees and a stream running through it. We also wanted privacy. We found a 20-acre parcel priced at $75,000. The seller was willing to take 10% down and carry the balance at 10% interest. It was a fair transaction. The problem was that it violated the rule on debt that Rich Dad taught me, which was, be careful when you take on debt. If you take on debt personally, make sure it's small. If you take on large debt, make sure someone else pays for it. We passed on the $75,000 piece of land and went looking for property that made more sense. And remember Rich Dad's rule. If you take on debt and risk, then you should be paid. Well, in this transaction, I would have taken on both the debt and the risk, and I was the one paying for it. About a month later, we found a piece of land for $115,000 that was even more beautiful. It was 87 acres of tall oak trees with a stream, and it had a house. I offered the seller full price if he would give me my terms, which he did. To make a long story short, we spent a few dollars fixing the house and sold the house and 30 acres for $215,000 using the same idea of low down payment, easy monthly payments. We kept 57 acres for ourselves. The new owner was thrilled because it was a beautiful home and he was able to buy it for almost nothing down. As an aside, he also bought it through his company for use as a corporate retreat for his employees, which allowed him to depreciate the purchase price as a company asset, deduct the maintenance costs, and deduct the interest payments. His interest payments more than paid for my interest payments. A few years later, he sold some of his company stock and paid off the loan to me, and I, in turn, paid off my loan. The debt was gone. With the extra $100,000 profit I made, I was able to pay the taxes from the gain of the land and the house. The net result was zero debt, $15,000 profit after taxes, and 57 acres of gorgeous land. It was like being paid for getting what you want. The IPO An initial public offering, IPO, or taking a private company public through a stock offering, is based on the same principles as the transaction described in the previous section. While the words, the market, and the players are different, the basic underlying principles remain the same. 
When my organization forms a company to take public, we often create value out of thin air, even though we try to base it on an accurate opinion of the fair market value. We take the offering to the public market, and instead of this equity being sold to one person, it is sold to thousands of people as shares of a company. The Value of Experience I recommend people start in the B quadrant before proceeding to the I quadrant. Regardless of whether the investment is in real estate, a business, stocks, or bonds, there is an underlying comprehensive business sense that is essential to being a sound investor. Some people have this comprehensive sense, but many do not, primarily because school trains us to be highly specialized, not comprehensively trained. For those thinking about moving to the B or I quadrants, I recommend starting small and taking your time. Do bigger deals as your confidence and experience grow. Remember, the only difference between an $80,000 deal and an $800,000 deal is a zero. The process of going through a small deal is much the same as going through a much larger, multi-million dollar public offering. It is only a matter of more people, more zeros, and more fun. Once a person gains experience and a good reputation, it takes less and less money to create bigger and bigger investments. Many times, it takes no money to make a lot of money. Why? Experience is valuable. As stated earlier, if you know how to make money with money, people and money will flock to you. Start small and take your time. Experience is more important than money. It is simple and easy. In theory, the numbers and transactions on the right side of the cash flow quadrant are simple, regardless of whether we are talking about stocks, bonds, real estate, or businesses. To be financially well-off simply means being able to think differently, to think from different quadrants, and to have the courage to do things differently. To me, one of the hardest things a person who is new to this way of thinking has to go through is the countless number of people who will tell you, you can't do that. If you can overcome that kind of limited thinking and seek out people who say to you, yes, I know how to do that, I'd be happy to teach you, your life will be much easier. The Laws I started this chapter with the Tax Reform Act of 1986. While that was a significant rule change, it won't be the last. I only use the Tax Reform Act as an example of how powerful some rules and laws can be. If a person is to be successful in the B or I quadrant, he or she needs to be aware of market forces and any changes in the law that affect those market forces. Today in America, there are thousands upon thousands of pages of tax law. That's just for the IRS alone. The federal law comes to more than 1.2 million pages of laws. It could take the average reader 23,000 years to read the entire U.S. IRS code. Every year, more laws are created, repealed, or amended. It would be more than a full-time job just to keep up with the amendments. Every time someone tells me that's against the law, I reply by asking them if they have read every line of code in America. If they say yes, I leave slowly, backing up toward the door. Never turn your back on someone who thinks they know every law. To be successful on the right side requires seeing 5% with your eyes and 95% with your mind. Understanding the laws and market forces is vital for financial success. Great transfers of wealth often occur when laws and markets change, so it is important to pay attention if you want to have those changes work in your favor and not against you. The government needs your money. I believe in paying taxes. I know the government provides many important and vital services essential for a well-run civilization. Unfortunately, in my opinion, government is too big, mismanaged, and has made too many promises it cannot keep. But it's not only the fault of the politicians and lawmakers in office today. Most of the financial problems we face today were created by their predecessors. Unfortunately, if lawmakers want to keep their jobs, 
they can't tell the public the truth. If they did, they'd be thrown out of office because the masses still depend on the government to solve their financial and medical problems. Government cannot. In the meantime, government will have to continue to increase taxes, even if the politicians promise not to. That's why Congress passed the Tax Reform Act of 1986. It needed to plug a tax loophole in order to collect more in taxes. Many Western governments must continue to collect even more taxes to prevent a default on some of those promises made long ago, such as Medicare and Social Security, as well as federal pensions for millions of federal workers. As the deficit grows, retirement funds, 401k plans in America or superannuation funds in many other countries, will begin to shrink because they are subject to market fluctuations. Mutual funds will begin to liquidate their stocks in order to pay for the sell orders from baby boomers who need to use the money for retirement. Baby boomers will suddenly be stuck with huge capital gains taxes from the gains accrued by these mutual funds and taxable to them on withdrawal. The capital gains will come from selling these overvalued stocks at higher prices, which the funds pass on to its members. Instead of cash, many baby boomers will be stuck with a tax bill for capital gains they never received. Remember, the tax man always gets the money first. Simultaneously, the health of millions of poorer baby boomers will begin to fail because poor people historically have worse health than affluent people. Medicare will be bankrupt, and the cry for more government support will go up in cities all across America. Add to this the eclipsing of America by China as the nation with the largest GDP and the trend toward pushing services, such as accounting, information, technology, and telesales, to nations such as India, and it becomes clear that wages will have to come down or productivity must skyrocket in order to meet the challenges of our rapidly changing global marketplace. The next great transfer of wealth is taking place by ignorance. The industrial age's entitlement mentality of big government and big business should be on its way out. But here we are, in the midst of the information age, and we are grasping at old solutions to new world problems. In 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. As stated earlier, in my opinion, that event was as significant as the year 1492 when Columbus bumped into the Americas in his search for Asia. In some circles, 1492 was the official beginning of the almost 500-year industrial age. The end was marked in 1989. The rules have changed. History is a guide. My rich dad encouraged me to learn the game well. After I learned it well, I could do what I wanted with what I knew. I write and teach out of concern that more people need to know how to take care of themselves financially and not become dependent upon the government or a company for life support. I hope I'm wrong about what I see coming down the road economically. Maybe governments can keep making promises to take care of people, keep on raising taxes, and keep on going into greater debt. Maybe the stock market will always go up and never come down again. And maybe real estate prices will go up again and your home will become your best investment. And maybe millions of people will find happiness earning a minimum wage and be able to provide a good life for their family. Maybe this can all happen, but I don't think so. Not if history is any guide. Historically, if people live to be 75 years of age, they live through two recessions and one depression. As baby boomers, we have gone through three recessions, and some question whether we are entering another depression. Maybe there will never be one, but history says there will. As the saying goes, if your neighbor loses his job, it's a recession. If you lose your job, it's a depression. The reason my rich dad had me read books on the great capitalists and economists was so I could gain a longer view and a better perspective on where we have come from and where we are going. Just as there are waves on the ocean, there are great waves in markets. Instead of the wind and sun driving the waves of the ocean, 
the waves of the financial markets are driven by two human emotions, greed and fear. I don't think that depressions are things of the past because we will always have those emotions of greed and fear. And when greed and fear collide and a person loses badly, the next human emotion is depression. Depression is made up of anger and sadness, anger with oneself and sadness over the loss. Economic depressions are emotional depressions. People lose and they get depressed. Even when the economy appears to be in great shape, there are millions of people who are in various stages of depression. They may have a job, but deep down they know they are not getting ahead financially. They are angry at themselves and sad over their loss of time. Little do they know that they have been trapped by the industrial age idea of find a safe, secure job and don't worry about the future. A great change means opportunity. We are entering an era of tremendous change and opportunity. For some people, it will be the best of times. For others, it will be the worst of times. As President John Kennedy once said, a great change is at hand. Kennedy came from the right side of the cash flow quadrant. Back in the 1960s, he tried desperately to elevate the lives of those stuck in a time warp. Unfortunately, decades later, millions of people are still trapped in those time warps, following ideas that were handed down from past generations. Ideas such as, go to school so you can find a secure job. While education is more important than ever before, we need to be teaching people to think a little further than just looking for a secure job and expecting the company or the government to look after them once their working days are through. That is an industrial age idea, and we are not there anymore. Nobody said it was fair, for this is not a fair country. We are a free country. There are people who work harder, are smarter, are more driven for success, are more talented, or are more desirous of the good life than others. In America, we are, thankfully, free to pursue those ambitions if we have the determination. Yet, every time somebody does better than we do, some people say it's unfair. The same people who think it would be more fair if the rich shared with the poor. Well, nobody said it was fair, and the more we try to make things fair, the less free we become. When someone says to me that there is discrimination or a glass ceiling, I agree with them. I know such things exist. I personally detest any kind of discrimination and, being of Japanese ancestry, I've experienced it firsthand. In the E and S quadrants, discrimination does exist, especially in companies. Your looks, your education, your skin color, and your gender all count on the left side. But they don't count on the right side, where fairness and security don't matter. It's all about freedom and the love of the game. If you want to play the game on the right side, the players will welcome you. If you play and win, fine. They will embrace you even more and ask you for your secrets. If you play and lose, they'll gladly take all your money. But don't complain or blame someone else for your failures. That is not the way the game is played on the right side. It's not meant to be fair. Being fair is not the name of the game. Why does government leave the B and I quadrants alone? In reality, governments don't leave the B and I quadrants alone. It's more that the B and I quadrants have more ways of escaping and hiding wealth. In Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I talked about the power of corporations. One big reason the rich keep more of their wealth is simply because they operate as corporate bodies, not human bodies. A human body needs a passport to go from country to country. A corporate body doesn't. A corporate body travels the world freely and can often work freely. A human body needs to register with the government, and in America, they need a green card to work. A corporate body doesn't. While governments would like to take more money from corporate bodies, they realize that if they pass abusive tax laws, the corporate bodies will take both their money and their jobs to some other country. 
In the industrial age, people talked about offshore as a country. The rich have always sought tax havens where their money would be treated kindly. Today, offshore is not a country. It's cyberspace. Money, being an idea and invisible, can now hide in the invisible electronic realm. Soon, if it is not already being done, people will do their banking on a geosynchronous satellite orbiting in space free from any laws, or they may choose to operate in a country whose laws are more favorable to rich people. In Rich Dad Poor Dad, I wrote that corporations became popular at the start of the Industrial Age just after Columbus discovered a new world filled with riches. Each time the rich sent a vessel out to sea, they were at risk because, if the ship didn't come back, the rich didn't want to be indebted to the families of sailors who died. So corporations were formed for legal protection and to limit the risk to the amount of money ventured. Wherever I travel in the world, the people I deal with primarily are employees of their own corporations. In theory, they own nothing and really don't exist as private citizens. They exist as officers of their rich corporations, but as private citizens they own nothing. And wherever I go in the world, I meet people who tell me, you can't do that in this country. It's against the law. Little do most people realize that most countries' laws in the Western world are similar. They may use different words, but in principle, their laws are pretty much the same. If possible, I recommend that you at least consider being an employee of your own corporation. It is especially advisable for high-income S's and B's, even if they own franchises or earn their income from network marketing. Seek advice from competent financial advisors to help you choose and implement the best structure for your particular situation.